Hello, and welcome to episode four of the Wharton FinTech podcast. I'm your host, Daniel McCauley, and I'm joined today by Doug Nelson, the first investor we've had on the podcast. Uh, Doug is an associate with F Prime up in Boston. Uh, welcome to the show, Doug. Thank you, Daniel. Uh, really appreciate you guys having me on. More than happy to have you. Uh, why don't we kick things off uh, with you giving us a few minutes on your background, um, what F Prime is and what you guys do and, and what's going on in your world. Great, great. Uh, yeah, so F Prime Capital is a global venture capital fund uh, based in Kendall Square in Boston that invests in, in healthcare and technology. Our roots are in one of, uh, one of America's great entrepreneurial success stories, Fidelity Investments, uh, which was founded in 1946 and grew from a single mutual fund into what is now one of the largest asset management firms in the world. Uh, the, the, the fund uh, and the company have been investing in the private markets on a principal basis for the better part of the last five decades, and they've backed a ton of great and category-defining companies over that time. Uh, and, and we've evolved quite a bit uh, over that time as well. So today, the way that we're structured is um, F-prime is, is uh, split between uh, healthcare investing and, and uh, technology investing in fintech and enterprise IT. I've been an associate with the, uh, the latter of those two groups for the last four years, uh, and I focus primarily on financial technology investing across capital markets, uh, payments, banking, lending, and, uh, and financial infrastructure as well. Very cool. So why don't you give us um, a little bit of background on what you were doing before you got to F prime and how you ended up there? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, like I said, last four years at F prime, um, before that I was actually working in a strategy consulting group uh, internal to Fidelity. Uh, and while I was there, I, I did a, a side project for, uh, for one of the partners at the fund and uh, have been excited to, to move out of management consulting and into an investing role since then. Um, I started my career at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange in the Technology Strategy Group, uh, which at a very interesting time in, in that firm's history, uh, kind of its, its transition from being a floor-driven, uh, human-driven trading environment to a global technology exchange, which, uh, which is one of the themes that carries through to my career today. Um, let's chat a little bit about some of the themes that you mentioned. Um, you, know, you, you mentioned that F prime is pretty thematic and you guys, uh, encapsulate both, uh, the healthcare and the FinTech. And I think for the purposes of this audience, uh, FinTech's probably the focus, although I'm sure there's definitely overlap in some parts of your portfolio. Um, talk about some of the investments that you guys have made since you came on board that, um, you think maybe illustrate some of the themes that you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So let me just start with, with uh, some market context and, and uh, the reasons for which we decided uh, that, uh, four years ago when I started that, that fintech and, and financial services was a really great place to, uh, uh, to start looking. Um, so as I'm sure you know, uh, when you think about fintech as the overlap between financial technology, i.e. software sold to a financial services company, and tech-enabled financial services, you're thinking about uh, an enormous market, right? So right. Right. Uh, while the, the latter is, is much bigger than the, uh, than the former, 
if you put the two together, you're looking at eight and a half trillion in total revenue opportunity around the globe. Um, and there's a pretty compelling market story behind it as well. So that's, that's, to me, rooted in the aftermath of the financial crisis. So the confluence of consumer confidence waning and financial services really dealing with a, a regulatory paradigm that they've never had to deal with before creates an immense opportunity for smaller and more nimble firms to, to, to really bite off pieces of the pie. Um, and so with that context in mind, uh, the way that we really segment the market, uh, so if you could envision um, uh, a sort of two by two or, or really three by two, uh, so to speak, um, okay. where across the top you have uh, a, a value chain view almost, so front office, middle office, and um, middle office, back office, and the third category being market infrastructure and market intermediaries. And then along the y-axis, uh, some of the functions underneath. So the way that we typically break it up is be uh, between investments and capital markets and, and banking, so lending and payments. Um, and what we've seen is uh, a, a couple of startups emerging at each layer of the stack and almost unbundling uh, the traditional universal banking model that we think dominated the, uh, the financial industry for the last 20 years. Um, so, you know, that's kind of the, the framework that we view the world. Um, and a couple of themes that, that I think are definitely worth calling out within that. Um, so if you think about uh, that value chain that I mentioned, um, so at the very front of, of the value chain is the front office, right? The, uh, the, t the individual or the user interface that has owned the customer relationship between a financial service uh, and its consumer. And uh, what we're seeing is companies that are replacing a high cost structure, typically human driven relationship uh, with a beautiful user interface um, and taking a lot of the economics out of that, uh, that equation um, and essentially replicating uh, either a financial advisor or a personal banker or a loan officer with a completely digital front-end experience. Um, and so when we think about that theme as a whole, uh, the, the term that we like to use for it is the new front door for financial services. Um, so Daniel, as, as of course you know, Wealthfront I think is a, a great example of a company that, that uh, really drills into this theme in my opinion. Um, and it's, it's one of the reasons why we invested in another one of our portfolio companies, uh, a company called Future Advisor. Right, right. Um, yeah, so, you know, I, I think the, the theme is playing out across all of the different verticals within financial services right now. So I can name a couple of examples in, in investment management. I can name a couple of examples in, in payments uh, and banking. Um, and what we're starting to see now and, and what we're interested in is, is the replication of the insurance agent uh, in a digital uh, and online driven front end. So uh, there are a couple of really interesting companies emerging uh, within the last 12 months that, that are pursuing that model. And so you mentioned, um, you mentioned Future Advisor. Um, and yeah, that's a great example of a company that I would agree is uh, part of the, the change that the consumer is seeing, right, from the front end of the bank. Um, and for, for the listeners that don't know, Future Advisor was recently acquired by BlackRock, so that seems to be, seem to have been a good call on, on the part of, of F Prime in getting 
you know, getting an investment into that company. Can you talk a little bit more specifically about, about what they do and what you guys saw in that company when you decided to invest? Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll start with the, with the basics of what they do. Um, and so Future Advisor is part of a, a broader wave of new startups uh, that the industry has termed uh, digital financial advice or robo-advisors. Uh, and essentially what they do is they, um, they take an individual investor and help, uh, and through a, a digital process, understand that customer's particular risk context and financial goals, and based on that process, uh, put them into essentially a low-cost ETF-based managed account. Um, that's a basket of underlying securities that um, it, it creates a diversification and an investment return profile that's uh, appropriate for their financial picture. Um, so in the old world, uh, this type of uh, ETF wrap um, a, a traditional financial advisor uh, could charge upwards of 100 uh, or 150 basis points for the same service. But by uh, replicating the same experience uh, totally online um, and originating those customers online as well, they can take a lot of the cost out of the picture and offer the same service for something between 25 and 50 basis points. Um, so a, really a pretty compelling market story. Um, one of the reasons why we invested in Future Advisor, um, it really came down to the team for us. So we, we met with a lot of the other uh, players in the space and were incredibly impressed with the, with the founding team. And in particular, their, their understanding of the business um, and their understanding of exactly what drove their unit economics. Um, so when we, when we met with the team, it was pretty clear that um, you know, if you spend X on acquiring a customer, uh, they had a pretty, uh, pretty clear vision into the, the amount that you could get out of that customer over the lifetime uh, uh, of, of that customer relationship. Right. And um, we, we found it pretty compelling, and, and, uh, and, and the metrics that, that they were able to show us were uh, uh, fairly informative and, and pretty exciting. Yeah, customer acquisition cost is probably the number one topic that comes up when you know I've been talking to fintech founders about some of the impacts that they're having on a lot of these traditional business models, even if the, the end product isn't necessarily um, replacing the human being with technology, it's assisting them. And, and these companies are using digital technology to acquire customers at a, a, at a low enough cost that they can now bring these products to parts of the market that were traditionally underserved or unserved by the existing financial institutions. Is that something that you're seeing in other parts of your portfolio or across FinTech more broadly? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think it, it certainly varies by the stage of the business. Um, those that uh, are earlier in their life cycle are certainly a little bit more focused on product, but um, you know, we, we invested in, in Future Advisor as part of their Series B round, and at that point, um, you know, they, they had really honed, uh, 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 honed in on their products and were optimizing around um, you know, a, a variety of different marketing channels that were yielding the best results for them. Right. Yeah, so let's, let's switch gears a little bit then and talk about a company that I've been very excited to ask you about, and that is Kensho. 
Uh, those guys are doing a lot of exciting stuff, and I think our listeners will be will be really interested to hear you give the background on Ken Show and what they're doing and why you guys decided to invest there. Yeah, sure. So um, I'll caveat by saying that um, Ken Show was uh, was a seed investment for us, and yeah. it's certainly grown quite a bit since we, our our original investment thesis, but. You know, in a similar way to Future Advisor, uh, the biggest driver was was the founding team there. So um, when we when we first met Kensho, it was pretty pretty early on in their life cycle. I think it was um, you know they had three or four people on staff, and they were starting to push out early product. Um, but in a similar way that uh, Future Advisor was remaking the economics of delivering financial advice. Kensho was re- remaking the economics of de- delivering financial data uh, and financial investment investment platforms. So when you look out at that market, it's a, a $25 billion market that's dominated by a couple of large incumbents that essentially control you know, the, almost the set-top box, so to speak, um, that, that deliver all financial insights to, uh, to analysts throughout the street. Uh, and what Kensho promised to do was provide the same processing power uh, with a cloud-based computational fabric, um, and one that, uh, in in its end state, could really, you know, take a fairly complex financial question and distill it down into plain language. So, for instance, if you as an analyst wanted to answer the question of what happens to this basket of securities in my portfolio when oil hits $50 a barrel, for instance. You can type that into their interface in plain language and spit out a regression of, uh, a, a back-tested regression of how your portfolio could perform in the future, given that circumstance. Um, so obviously a really exciting idea and one that, um, in my opinion, they've, they've done a really great job of both executing on and then broadening uh, as they've grown. That's very cool. That's really cool technology and a really cool business. Um, yep. So we've covered, I guess we've covered something that was B2C, or we've covered something that was B2B. Um, sure. You mentioned, you mentioned yeah. that sort of, that six box framework. Um, yeah, yeah. Discuss so, the- you know, without going into too much detail, you know, the, the other one that I think is pretty much, is fairly top of mind is, sort of at the very back of that, uh, that okay. value chain, um, yeah. in the guts of financial intermediation and asset transfer. Um, so within that category, uh, you, know, you saw the last 20 years um, create a total change in the way that one asset class, or maybe a couple asset classes were traded. So in particular, equities and spot FX. Um, okay. But I think we're starting to see waves of electronification and technology ripple through uh, fixed income and OTC derivatives um, and uh, you know, even some of the longer tail asset classes like leveraged loans as well. So uh, we're, we're pretty excited about that theme in the aggregate. Um, and one offshoot of that theme is everything that's going on in the blockchain space right now. Um, so um, I knew we couldn't go too far without somebody saying blockchain. I think we yeah yeah exactly yeah, I, I, I did my about minutes. in that direction yeah <laughs> um so so yeah so like i said that's that's one area where we're spending a lot of time right now uh and there are a, a couple of big names out in the market um that are are starting to apply a, a pretty novel technology to 
um, some some fairly old workflows and antiquated workflows that really at the end of the day are 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 ripe for disruption and uh, ripe for modernization. So, what have you looked at specifically with regard to blockchain? Have you made any investments in businesses that are that are in the blockchain or distributed ledger space? Yeah. So, one that uh, that I can talk about is a company called TradeBlock. Um, right. So, TradeBlock is a, a New York-based company that um, is really more of a data play at this point around understanding the various components of blockchain technology. Um, so their first use case was around uh, institutional participants in the Bitcoin market. Uh, so uh, much in the same way that Bloomberg in the early days of uh, fixed income trading uh, created a really valuable platform that not only allowed uh, investors to understand fixed income positions, but also trade them on a bilateral basis. Uh, TradeBlock has done the same thing in in, uh, in the Bitcoin markets and is working on some pretty cool stuff um, around asset transfer as well. Yeah, this, it seems that there's been a lot of interest um, and a lot of dollars going into blockchain, Bitcoin, distributed ledger startups. And um, I think we discussed this. I was recently at Cybos talking to the bankers and um, I was at Buttonwood in New York last week. And it feels like every other word that comes out of uh, a banker's mouth these days is, is blockchain. Do you think that there's still a lot of misunderstanding about the applications of these kinds of technologies? It's just, you know, where are we at the hype cycle? You know, where do you think, aside from the problems that TradeBlock is tackling, do you think the, the big opportunities for this kind of technology to have an impact are? Um, yeah, you know, that, I think that's a really good question, and, and you hit the nail on the head, which is that I, I do believe we're a, a little bit within, um, or, or I think we're cresting in the midst of the hype cycle around blockchain. Um, and for me, I think that's really driven by, by the news media more than anything. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I think there's, there's been a lot of uh, articles and a lot of stories about the potential for blockchain and um, I think at some point, somebody on a news desk realized that that drives traffic. And so uh, there's probably <laughs> been an outsized amount of conversation uh, relative to the actual problem that it solves within financial um, institutions. Um, that said, I think if you ask anybody that's been poking around back office processes for a long period of time, they'll agree that there is uh, there is an issue with the way that securities are processed and cleared and settled um, that that stems from a long history dating back to you know the early days of the DTCC. Um, I, I, I think that the, the convergence of hype around blockchain uh, in the in, in the news media and the C-suites of many of the banks is, is is forcing people to take a really hard look at these these antiquated processes and and figure out ways that that they can apply this technology or or even really any technology to um, a, a complex and error prone process uh, at the back end of securities processing. So it's it sounds like the the big opportunities and this is you know I'm I'm putting words in your mouth here but this is consistent with what I've heard from other people in the space that the big opportunities here are kind of the unsexy ones. It's not the, the, the next currency that's going to replace the dollar. It's not necessarily fulfilling the, the libertarian dream that Bitcoin was, was set out to do, but it's really fixing the relatively boring back office 
issues that banks are dealing with. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's partially fair, um, but, um, you know, I, I don't want to discount the longer term potential for some of the other things that you mentioned, right? Yeah. I, I think some of those things still could happen. But as as investors, we we have to think in terms of the realistic timeframes in which we could uh, back a company and and see that company's idea to fruition. So um, while I think some of the, the 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 broader implications of blockchain are are certainly fascinating, and I'd, I'd love to see them play out. Um, I think that's more of a ten year, uh, ten to twenty year uh, trend as opposed to a five to seven year trend. Right. Fair point. So we've got a few more minutes left. Um, we've talked about some of the investments you guys have made. Could you perhaps talk about the kinds of things you're looking at now, maybe in the context of what gets you most excited over the next five to seven years and, and, and where you think some of these trends are going? Yeah, sure. So, you know, without um, over elaborating on blockchain, that's certainly one area where I'm spending a lot of time right now. Um, another one that's worth mentioning um, is the evolution of payments towards verticalized solutions. Uh, so the thesis that we have is that the core of payment processing for, for a variety of different reasons will probably see a, a decline in margins over time, right? Because at the end of the day, processing payments is just moving data around. Um, right, and right. When, when we think about where software companies in, in the payment space will continue to add value over time, it's in nailing a workflow or nailing a vertical. Uh, so I'll give you an example. Uh, healthcare payments is an enormous opportunity uh, where almost 30% of the gross uh, payment volume is dedicated to administrative overhead and, and waste. And wow. being able to electronify and digitize those processes will create enormous value for the uh, for the participants in the healthcare ecosystem. And you know, even taking a small chunk of the overall payment volume um, and and taking a spread on that for for processing it, um, it really creates enormous value for a, for a software company that that really understands the space. There we, we go. We managed to uh, find the intersection there between. FinTech and healthcare, so. Um, yeah, absolutely, well, well and, and we're excited to work with the healthcare team on, on some of those uh, investments. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, before we go, do you have, uh, you know, this is, a, this is a student-run organization and a lot of our listeners are, are business school students and, and engineers and, and design students. Do you have any advice or any perspective on people that want to follow your path, that want to become an investor whether in fintech specifically or or in early stage investing in general. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I, I'd say the best advice that I have is is just to get out there and get involved in the space. Um, so I, obviously, I've been really impressed with what you guys have accomplished at at Wharton FinTech and and creating thought leadership and 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 really kind of putting your stake down as as leaders within. Uh, the the MBA space uh, in particular to fintech um, and anybody that is really interesting interested in the space should get out and go to meetups and get on Twitter and start to interact with uh, all of the incredible voices in, in this growing and vibrant community and it, you know as 
as we think about the the folks that um, we we want to join our team here at F Prime, it's the the ones that have that embedded knowledge and embedded understanding of the ecosystem more so than than the traditional you know banker consultant background. That's really helpful. I'm also really glad you said Twitter because I've, I've been on a bit of a soapbox <laughs> lately, as has uh, as has Steve, my co-founder, about getting our getting our MBA peers on the Twitter. Well, we're about out of time. I really appreciate you uh, joining me as not only the first investor we've had on the podcast, but the first guest we've had join us remotely. So hopefully there weren't uh, too many hiccups and bugs, but we'll get a chance to check that out once we, once we listen to the recording and go live. So uh, thanks a lot, Doug, and that was a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Daniel.